This is Queen Victoria, and welcome to Murder Lab, the podcast where I don't just discuss one serial killer, I discuss several serial killers and something they have in common. Except today, I will not be discussing several serial killers and something they have in common. Today is a different kind of episode. It is a palate cleanser, if you will. It is about Crazy Not Insane, the movie on HBO. But before we get into all that, I have a few reminders. Such as we do have Murder Lab merch right now, including refrigerator magnets, car magnets, and even t-shirts. So I will be posting pictures this week so you can see the merch. Make sure you check out the Facebook and Instagram and keep an eye out for that. (laughs) As always, I'd like to thank Igor, my socially distant assistant and immoral support. For everything that Igor does for me. Don't forget to share the love and the information so more people can tune in and enjoy the lab. I have exciting news. This is officially season two, episode one. Technically, the last episode probably should have been season two because the new year started, but I got into the groove and I made it season one, episode 25. This one is the official start of season two. So that's exciting. Murder Lab is now in season two. This is the 26th episode. A little pat on the back for myself. The next episode will be the last in the Families That Murder Together series. I will be talking about the Reigns Brothers and the Chicago Rippers. But now to dig into today's episode. There is a movie called Crazy Not Insane on HBO. It came out November of 2020. It is about Dorothy Otnow Lewis, MD. So her argument is serial killers are not born or violent people are not born. They are made due to abuse and brain disorders and so forth. How I found out about it, it was not on my radar until my buddy Brent messaged me and told me that I should check it out because she does mention serial killers. So it is in line with the Murder Lab topics, and he thought I might find it interesting. I had just done the book episode where I talk about the different types of serial killer books. So I happened to be glancing through books that I had talked about, and she was actually one on the list. So when I was looking through that list, I saw the name Dorothy Otnow Lewis. So I had one of her books and I didn't realize it, which is kind of funny. So then I was like, well, that's even better. Now I have a book to read as a companion to the movie, movie, whether they're related or not. And that would just be a little more to flesh out the episode. And I thought, well, that'll be a good, as I said, palate cleanser episode where it's a little different, but still in the same vein. Then, of course, you know what I do is I have to look and see if there are other books. So I found some other books, but I will get to that towards the end of the episode. So the part that matters is I figured I will read the book first and then I will watch the movie and then we'll go from there. It turns out just by, I don't know if there's Grand Design or what is it, The Great Magnet, but the book that I have is actually the movie. (laughs) So (laughs) I made a joke at the last episode about reading the book before the movie and maybe that's a good idea, maybe that's a bad idea. And I didn't know how right I was because I hadn't read the book then. So it is the book version of the movie. And I will go over the differences. I won't go in like super fine detail, but I will uh, give you just a, a the gist of the differences and such. First, let's get into the movie. It is 
just about two hours long, but it's really interesting. And of course, I was taking notes, so it took longer for me to view it. But if you just want to sit down and watch it, it's really interesting. If you're interested in this stuff at all, it should go by fairly quickly for you. First, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give a quick highlight of some of the things that it covers. And then I'm going to go into specifics. So it's kind of like the non-spoiler version, the short version of it. And then I'll get into the details where I actually really dig in and, and tell you some things. And so if you don't want to know too much, you may want to just listen to this first section, pause it, go watch the movie, and then come back and listen to the rest. Or you can listen to the whole thing and then watch it and form your own opinions about it and what have you. So the general highlights, they talk about how she got started in child psychology and she had started off just in psychiatry in general, but then she specifically decided to go into delinquents, child delinquents, and what sparked her brain, you know, to go into that field and to see, well, she saw that children who were violent tended to have abuse in their families and maybe even some mental trauma, brain trauma and such. So that led to her experiences with talking to people on death row and which led to her talking to people who have disassociative cases, which if you're not familiar, it basically means that the typical one, the big one is split personalities. But there are smaller versions of that where you can disassociate just by like blacking out or having a fugue state. You can disassociate by falling asleep. I don't, there are different, different versions of it. So it's not just multiple personality. So it goes into some of that. Well, it goes into quite a bit of that. Another big chunk of it is the legal view of insanity and the idea of punishment versus rehabilitation. So it definitely talks about capital punishment and the judicial system and the penal system about, you know, what the goal and the focus should be and where it is. So there's definitely politics as far as that's concerned. So if you don't feel like watching something that will make you feel and think about death row and things like that, then maybe now's not the time to watch it, but I think it is a good watch. Something that will definitely spark your interest, and no uh, no pun intended mentioning death row and executions and, and the uh, electric chair. She talks about her experience with Arthur Shawcross and Ted Bundy. She interviewed both of them and was involved with both of their trials. Even if all the rest of that stuff sounds kind of dry, it's actually really interesting. And having those specific people, I think, helps make it more engaging. And if you're interested in serial killers at all, that should help pull you into it. Those are the general highlights. That gives you the gist of it. Basically, just she, she is for rehabilitation and not so much for the death penalty. And she's for trying to rehabilitate people and not just put them away. It gets into all that. There are nuances, obviously, but I just figured I'd tell you right off the top. So that's the general highlight section. Now we're going to get into the spoiler alert section. And granted, it's not like she dies at the end. You know, it's nothing spoilers like that. Or like Ted Bundy was killed. Like we all know. But it's more just like I'm really going to get into some details here. And if you don't want to know any details and wait to listen until after you've watched it. In the movie, it begins with the first thing that really motivated her was her was Hitler. Because she remembers the Nuremberg trials and she remembers wondering how could a man become that way? How could, even though he didn't kill people, he had tons of people kill people. And, and what separated her from becoming that person? What separated her from when she got angry? What keeps her from killing? And what keeps other people from killing 
when you know that some people kill, but some people don't. So that's really what drove her through the rest of her life and through her whole career. She talks about the ignorance she had in, early in her career and that fresh out of school and all her training, she, there were things that she just took for granted because that's what she had been told. But her experiences obviously taught her, as it does, experience teaches you that sometimes what you were trained and what you thought you knew maybe isn't right or maybe isn't down the right path. So she talks about some of the mistakes she made before she knew better. She actually never planned to work with violent people. She was going to become a psychoanalyst, so it kind of talks about that. And and it goes into her career of examining delinquents with abusive parents. And again, her she was just fascinated with why does one person cry and another person lashes out? She gets a grant for examining delinquents at Bellevue, and then they interview her research assistant... They talk about how homicidal kids are more likely to be abused and have size of organic impairment like brain dysfunction. So now she starts to see that not only is there abuse, but if there's brain dysfunction, how does that affect the homicidal tendencies? So it's not just abuse, but a lot of times it's coupled with brain dysfunction. Enter Jonathan Pincus who is a neurologist, and he became involved in this in their study. They began to study the, re- uh, the relevance of brain damage and issues with violence. Dorothy had an article in a psychiatric journal, and she wound up getting interviewed on Diane Sawyer about it. So they actually show a little clip of the interview and talk about that. They interview Richard Burr, who was a defense attorney, that saw that interview and then he was intrigued about mental health and so he asked her to check out somebody he was defending who happened to have brain dysfunction and a history of abuse. She starts getting called in all cases. She has seen 22 serial killers and a lot of other different kinds of killers as well. She did make a note that you have to be like a detective and she loves it. She does talk about how you see a person and you start talking to them and a lot of times they don't want to talk or the family doesn't want to talk. So then maybe she'll get the medical records and then the medical records start to show a pattern of visits. And and so, you know, so then you have, okay, well, they said this and they acted this way and then you have this proof in the records and we saw this. So then you do have to start kind of putting the puzzle pieces together. And I think that's particularly interesting because I'm sure you are all aware of the Hunter Killer boom that is happening or of the game now if you are not because i spoke with someone the other day that was not familiar with it hunt a killer is it's basically a game so you subscribe and you can get like a six month subscription or a year subscription and in six months they will send you a box each month and it has clues and they they tell you you have to eliminate a suspect or you have to decide what the murder weapon was. They give you a goal for that specific box. Well then on the next box they'll give you more clues. And then they, you have a, another goal. It goes on like that. So after, after six boxes, you have all these clues. And sometimes the evidence that comes in the next box can affect what you thought from the first box and, and so on and so forth. And there are codes and there are all kinds of things. So you are truly a detective in, in this game. And they encourage you to play it with friends. It is fun to play with friends. I've actually currently gotten addicted to it. My Christmas present was actually a year of Hunt-A-Killer. From my wonderful, lovely boyfriend, Todd the Fox. And that is basically two seasons. So I'll get the six-month game and then a new six-month game after the first one. And he even got me a cork board and a bunch of stuff. So that way when I get my clues, I can put them up my little cork board and I can take notes. And it is wonderful. And I didn't know that I loved decoding things, but I do apparently. So this has made me learn some stuff about myself and in general, and it helps work your brain. So it's lots of fun. So it is fun 
to become a detective. And I think obviously that is something that is inside of a lot of us and specifically true crime people. So you may be intrigued by true crime because you like to see how the pieces fit together. So I think a lot of true crime fans like to feel like detectives. It's not surprising that someone who once has, is attracted to detection wound up in the field that Dorothy Otnell Lewis wound up in. The next thing they talk about in it is Marie Moore, who is an older woman that wound up having a younger boyfriend and they took a girl captive and she wound up, he wound up killing the girl. So she starts to talk to Marie Moore and the animated sequence, it, I couldn't help it. It reminded me of the first video, the aha video is a take on me where it's kind of like that moving squiggly animation. I had a little fun moment with that. So they did have some animation moments, which I think actually did help make it interesting and keep your attention. And the way they did the animation, I think, did complement it. It wasn't in fashion and psychiatry at the time that she was being trained to think to believe in multiple personality disorder. She did not believe in it because that's how that was the training she had at Yale. And the prevalent attitude about it amongst psychiatrists was it was boy hockey. Is that a word? It was ridiculous. It was ludicrous. It wasn't a thing. So when she was called to interview Marie Moore, the person who called her was like, I think she could be multiple personalities, so make sure you check it out. And she's like, well, I'm not really sure. It's kind of like asking me to check out Bigfoot. But she, that was those, those weren't her exact words. But the gist is, you're asking me to see if she could be the tooth fairy. But she's like, okay, I will, I don't know, I'll see what I can do. And it turns out that... That was what changed her mind about pers multiple personalities, is it seemed that Marie Moore had an alter ego called Billy to help her deal with abuse that she had faced. And I won't go too much into that because I think it's more interesting to actually see it on the movie and go down that path that way. But I want to mention it because it is a very important part because that set up things for the rest of the movie. And the rest of her life, it opened doors that she didn't think necessarily would be there. So then when she starts researching this multiple personality or disassociative personalities, they realize they can start really early. Like they had an example of a seven-year-old girl that was showing disassociative behaviors like she would be writing in her journal and then she'd write something else and it would be completely different handwriting. And they'd watch her do it. They had her on film and they would show her and like she had different handwriting. And so you could see examples starting early that could be disassociative behavior they go on to show her talking about interviewing death row inmates and people on trial and the next big section is Shawcross she gets called into Shawcross during his trial and when they did an MRI it actually showed a cyst on the tip of his frontal lobe which can trigger seizures and bizarre violent behavior and she's she did a really good job of explaining why this is important you have your limbic system which controls food sex and anger your primitive brain, so there's lots of connections in there. It's like reins on a horse. If you have scars on your frontal lobe or problems with your frontal lobe, it severs those reins. If he was provoked, he would kill. And if you have temporal lobes, seizures brought on by those, it can be bright lights, nausea, headache, dizziness, followed by sleep. And Shawcross had some of those including after he committed murder, he would fall asleep. So those to her, you know, that was a big indication that he had brain damage that was affecting his behavior that was causing him to kill. And then enter Dr. Park Dietz. He thinks that multiple personalities are a hoax and that Dorothy led Shawcross to believe that he was disassociative. So that's, that's an interesting portion to see is showing her videos with Shawcross and her interactions with him versus Ola Parkey seeing what he thought about it. 
there was a moment when they're talking about she put Shawcross under hypnosis. And now keep in mind, this is early in her career. She really didn't like to use hypnosis, but she went ahead and used it. It was again, it was early in her career. She's kind of trying things out and trying to figure out the best ways to, to get at the truth. So she used it on him. But the problem is that's part of what made the whole thing questionable during the trial is because hypnosis was kind of iffy with people. And I mean, it still is. But she did make it clear to say, hey, it's not like I put him under and then I just believe everything he says or any anybody that she puts under. She just doesn't take it on faith that everything they're saying is absolute truth or really did happen or whatever. She says you have to confirm it with family, friends or records and make sure that there is some kind of basis in what they're saying and, and a reason to believe them. So the uh, the cynical Dietz, he pointed out that under hypnosis, Shawcross said he was a 13th century cannibal. And he pointed out, well, then obviously it's ridiculous. So that just proves that the whole thing is just ridiculous and, and we should just disregard it and she's a sham and a hoax and whatever. Now, I admit that gave me pause, but when I started to think about it, the whole point of disassociation is there is something happening that you're, you cannot handle. So something has to happen inside you so you can move forward and be able to process it. If you cannot move forward based on whatever is happening to you, it's so traumatic, then you either like shut down. Like I said, you can go to sleep. You can black out. Something happens that makes you find a different way to cope with it. In some cases, with split personalities, commonly they will assume the role of their attacker. So sometimes they will become the attacker because then if you think that is control so now I am the person abusing I am the person doing it so I'm not the one being hurt so they can take away that pain and twist it into something else or another common thing is they can form a protector so if they feel like they need someone who can stand up for them and they feel too weak they don't feel strong enough that they can themselves can do it then they create this protector in themselves so as in Marie Moore's case, when she developed Billy, Billy was her protector. Billy was the one who fought back. And so that's not necessarily an uncommon thing. If part of the function of creating personalities is a way to deal with what you're trying to deal with, I think it makes sense that Arthur Shawcross, who was known to eat a woman's vagina, and I don't mean in the sexy fun way, I mean he literally cut it off and ate it, he was therefore a cannibal. And so I think it makes sense that if you have cannibalistic tendencies that you cannot deal with, then it makes sense that you would create a personality that was a 13th century cannibal because that makes it okay for you to do that behavior. That helps you reconcile that in yourself. He would also talk like he was his mother. Todd pointed out like, well, isn't that the point of Psycho is <laughs> he becomes his mom? Shawcross would talk in a higher voice like like he's his mother. So he created his mother's voice as a way to deal with it. And then he created this 13th century cannibal as a way to deal with it. And I still understand that as I'm saying these words and I see that they make sense in that context, I also understand why it sounds ridiculous. But personally, I don't think it sounds that unbelievable or impossible. I think it does make sense that if something terrible is happening to you, that you would need to shut down and that you would need to do something drastic if it's 
if it's a really, truly terrible thing, you might have to do something drastic to be able to handle it and to move forward with your life. So that's why there's repressed memories. And I think that stuff makes sense. I think the problem is I don't think it's super common and I can see how it's easily manipulated. So that's the biggest problem is why there's still skepticism is, number one, it even if true or even if it makes sense, it still sounds a little silly is, oh, so you're actually a 13th century cannibal or you're actually Billy. You know, I can see why it doesn't make sense. It sounds goofy. And you can see how some people could fake it. If you're a pretty good actor, you could pretend to have other personalities. And if you hit the right notes and someone really wants it, it has the recipe of disaster. It has the recipe of being abused. So it's unfortunate that I do think it makes sense that it would happen. But I also understand why there should be skepticism around that. It's just unfortunate that... The people who abuse it make it harder for the people who actually have it to get help. Dietz reacted to all of this with, and I quote, Any popular notion that serial killers are crazy are just wrong. He claimed that Shawcross ate the vagina to hide the DNA. Because, you know, that's really the only way that you can hide DNA is by consuming it. He said that Shawcross was not insane under the law, that one thing has nothing to do with the other, whether you knew what you were doing at the time is unrelated to if you once ate a raw rabbit or vagina. So that's his stance. So he very clearly has the completely opposite view of Dorothy. Another interesting thing was the prosecutor was up for election. So he put on quite a scene during the trial. Shawcross was found sane and guilty. This leads into the dichotomy of legal competence versus sanity and how that goes against psychology. So in the past, madness was punishable in England. So you would get killed, you'd be burnt, you'd be hanged if you were mad. That was a cause enough to be punished. That was the reason to be punished. But over time, we turned it into, well, we're going to punish you even though you're psychotic. So it's not cruel and unusual or against the Constitution. If you don't have your facilities, we can still punish you. The general rule of thumb or, well, the actual law, I guess, is that the person has to understand what they did is why they're being executed. And they have to understand what execution means. They have to understand that they will be dead as a punishment of what they did. They give an example of a guy that was on death row. He had his last meal and he saved his piece of pie for afterwards. So... He obviously did not understand what execution was. Of the two things, he didn't get the second part. And you're supposed to have both things. So that's another example of people who are being put to death that maybe shouldn't be. Dorothy's big point is she's afraid of condemning someone to death because of their upbringing and brain damage and they can't control their actions. And she agrees they need to be kept away from society, but they need help. They go into this man who had exhibiting several different personalities. His name was Max. He was also a Zen monk. There were times he acted like a baby and there was a godlike persona. So he would switch back and forth because of, um, because of abuse that he had in his childhood. Scorsese's office called her because De Niro wanted to meet murderers to model himself after for his Cape Fear role. All of Max's personalities agreed that he would talk to De Niro and she introduced them. Now I'm assuming that they had filmed it, but that there wasn't permission given to show De Niro talking to him because that was not included. Now, the interesting thing is that 
while she she had a good rapport with Max, and they wanted her to agree that it was okay to discharge him, but he had attempted to kill two of his lovers, and she felt like he was still possibly dangerous, so she could not sign off on letting him out because she couldn't, in good faith, say that he would not hurt anyone. And the the goal is we don't want – he still needs help. He shouldn't be out in the general public where he could hurt someone. He still needs treatment. So they just found another doctor to do it. They go into how she met her husband, Mel, and then they talk about her family some. Next, they talk about Johnny Frank Garrett, who she said is the sickest of the death row people she had ever seen. She began by thinking he was uh, psychotic with brain damage and a history of seizures. And then later she realized it was disassociation and he would slip into someone he called Aaron Shockman. Because as a boy, he was filmed in pornographic situations with other boys, with adults, with dogs. And I will admit, it was hard to hear him say those words. And it was difficult emotionally to watch that. He also had another alter ego that was Aunt Barbara. And that promised him he wouldn't die. Again, by law, they must understand why they are being executed and what execution means. Again, execution means that you know you are going to die. But he had his Aunt Barbara in his head telling him he wouldn't die. He was executed, voted uh, 17 to 1 by a clemency board. The next section is they really go into crime and punishment, not rehabilitation, and some of the general attitudes like it's too expensive and who cares. They don't care why they did it. They did it, so get rid of them. There's motivations of retribution and deterrence, but... There doesn't seem to be a deterrent effect from capital pu- capital punishment. And the overall theory of you need to find out what creates it or, you're, or you'll never really prevent it. So again, I'm just hitting the highlights on that and I'll let you watch it to see the uh, in-depth examination. She had been trying to find someone who was a true sociopath that was truly not affected by killing people. So she wound up meeting an executioner, Sam Jones, and he claimed, yes, I hit the switch on people and I really it doesn't affect me I don't give a shit he'd been featured in people magazine he actually had executed some of her clients and during the interview she realized he's just as muddled and had been abused as much as the murderers while he claimed to not be affected by what he did he would talk about violent experiences with other people and general like lashing out after he would execute someone he would paint and the paintings Like, there's one that it looks a lot like the Scream painting. And it's just general, like, bursts of color. And it just, you can tell that whoever painted that, something was going on. But when he looked at it, he's just like, I don't know, it's just a thing I did. So he was able to compartmentalize or disassociate by saying, okay, well, I'm fine with it. And yeah, I make those paintings, but that's just something I do. So he he cannot reconcile within his brain. Those, those, Those paintings are a result of him being bothered by what he does. And that maybe his bar fights are a result of what he does. And that he does care about what's happening. And that's what's leading to these other things in his life. And I was particularly excited because in the book they mentioned him and they mentioned the paintings. So it was kind of nice to actually be able to see them. The last part is talking about Ted Bundy. And they they started off by why are we bringing Bundy up? The reason is because they want to challenge the belief that he had a normal childhood and he was born evil. When she worked with him in 1986, she worked on the defense team. There were no gross neurological problems. There were some abnormalities seen in depressed people. And then others diagnosed him as a psychopath. 
They show his interview with Dr. James Dobson, the evangelical author. And if you don't know, I know who he was because I grew up, I grew up in a Christian household and he wasn't a big part of it. He was just mentioned peripherally. There was a newsletter that went out and they counted the number of times in popular TV shows that there was cussing or nudity or violence. I mean, literally, they would say they said the B word three times. The side of a breast was shown they said the F word once, that kind of, I mean, they actually, but what struck me as so funny about that is that meant someone who was, thought this was bad for you and, and bad for your soul and your spirituality, sat there and watched it. So they still watched it, but I'm sure that they thought of as, I'm taking one for the team. I believe he was, it was focus on the family is what he was involved with. With Dr. James Dobson, Bundy claimed that pornography is why he had done all these things. When Dorothy was researching, she found out that Bundy's grandma had a depressive disorder, that when he was like three, he would put knives around his aunt in bed while she was sleeping. She thought that he had a bipolar disorder and that he wasn't competent to represent himself or to go to trial. But both of those things happened. The judge ruled that he was competent, so Bundy did represent himself and went to trial. It was time for him to be executed. And right before the execution, he wanted to see see her because he felt like she had always really listened to him. And then she drops this bomb that Bundy told her he had a sexual encounter with his sister. And his mom said that later on, Bundy had told his sister, be careful, there's a serial killer out there killing women that look like you. That was not in the book. I had never heard that he might have molested his sister and that he might have been killing the women because they look like her. It had always been surmised he was killing the women that looked like his ex-fiancee. That was like a big thing that I had never heard. They interviewed Bill Hagmeyer, a former FBI special agent. He was the major agent on the case. It was revealed that Bundy's mom tried abortion pills, but they didn't work. She actually put him up for adoption, but then her father insisted on bringing him back. And he said, I'll say I'm the father and you will be the aunt. He was a violent man. And I knew I knew of those things. I knew that they had claimed that the mom was actually his aunt and that his grand his grandpa, who he thought was his dad, <laughs> was violent. Another thing that I had never heard of is after he was dead, his wife sent to Dorothy love letters that Bundy had sent to her for prison. What was interesting is there were different signatures on them. So some of them would say Ted and she showed like his real, you know, his normal signature. But then some of them they saw he would sign Sam or Sambo, which happens to be the name of his grandfather. And again, like I said before, is it's common to have an alter ego that is the abuser. So she figures he's somewhere on the continuum of dissociative, dissociative disorder. So she didn't come right out and say he had a split personality, but he may have had some kind of disassociative tendencies. For example, he called the person that killed the entity. And they have a clip of him talking about how he has something that takes over. And I have heard that before. And normally you just think, well, that's serial killer bullshit. That's just like something they say or, or, you know, maybe there is something where they do feel like something takes them over. But again, I guess that is a form of dissociation. If you're saying some, it feels like something else is controlling me then that, you know, it could be that. That was an eye-opener. The next eye-opener, they never knew who Ted Bundy's father was. So some people had the theory that it was probably the the grandfather because he was so abusive and he was so so protective and 
so people thought, well, he would only react to this way if he was actually the father, that he had slept with his own daughter to create Ted Bundy. And Bill, when they interviewed him, the FBI guy, he said as soon as he met the sister that, like, it was basically like, hey, you know, it's a nice day out. And she's like, oh, by the way, uh, his grandpa is not his dad. <laughs> it's kind of like we're out of nowhere, like, what? <laughs> I wasn't even, I didn't say anything. So it almost feels like the lady doth protest too much. You know, it's it's kind of like uh, if someone's in the closet and they're just like, oh, I love... I love pussy. I love them bitches. And you're like, I was I was talking about being thirsty. <laughs> like, I don't know what that. So it's like someone trying too hard to try to cover things. That's kind of how it came across. But somehow Dorothy managed to get some of his DNA and have it tested. And it turns out that his grandpa was not his father. That was a shock. And it was a little surprising. Because things seem to fit into the pattern that made sense that that might be the case. But the overarching thing that seemed to be the main motivation behind his abuse was that he was always treated like no one wanted him around. His mom wanted to get rid of him. And then, well, so she tried an abortion. Then she tried adoption. And then he was just basically always treated like an outsider. To the point where right before his execution Dorothy talked to his mom and his mom's like I'm just going to be happy when this is all over so the only way to really interpret that is he just needs to die you know I'm not going to have to be relieved until he's dead the end of the movie it shows footage of a witch being burned and I recognized it of course from the movie City of the Dead which is a good it's a good old uh, black and white movie with Christopher Lee he has a smaller role in it, but he's still wonderful in everything he does. It's a it's a solid movie. I Todd and I really enjoy it. On a side note, there is a Rift Tracks version of it that I highly recommend because I highly recommend Rift Tracks in general. They show some of this uh, clip of this witch being burned, and she said Dorothy says that whenever she has thought about witches being burned or she's you know people have been talking about it, she always identified with the witch. One of the ending thoughts is murders are made, not born. So that's kind of the um, synopsis of the whole point of the movie. Now I'm going to compare it to the book, which again, I'm not going to get too terribly in depth with this. I know sometimes I get super in depth, but I think it's sufficient to point out some of the highlights of the differences. The movie was the same as the book for the first bit, but then it goes out of a different order than the book. For example, like they talk about the executioner at the end of the book, but it's earlier in the movie that kind of play with when things are mentioned. I don't think it really hurt the flow of anything. I thought it was fine. Basically, Pincus was mentioned very briefly in the movie, but in the book, he's a huge part of it because he basically became her partner on all this stuff. So it was interesting to go from how much she talked about Pincus in the book to him just barely being mentioned in the movie. So that was kind of uh, interesting. I understand why they did that because they had a lot of things to talk about. So I get maybe they felt like that wasn't as important in this context. But I do think it was important to read in the book her relationship with him and how he was involved with it. She met him when she was starting her psychiatric residency. And he was a junior faculty member of Yale Medical College. She brought him in on a case, which is an interesting case of this girl named Le Leanne, this kid. She was, I think she might have been 13 if I remember, where she out of nowhere stabbed her best friend. That's all I'm going to say about that because you have to read the book. <laughs> but she brings him in on that case and then ba from that point on they're basically just partners and things. 
When they do the Diane Sawyer interview in the movie, they didn't mention this detail, which I thought was a funny detail. In the book, Dorothy says that she was told she wouldn't be asked questions like if a mother could tell if a toddler would grow up to become a serial rapist. So during the interview, guess what happened? She was asked, can the mother of a two-year-old with behavioral problems predict if the child will become a murderer? <laughs> She's like, what the fuck? You literally did the thing that they told me wasn't going to happen. But again, I understand why you can't put everything in the movie. The thing about Bundy is they mention that her last visit with him, but it's just like a few paragraphs. And they just say like basically she she was going to see him and then it was postponed. And then she got to talk to him for, I think, like four hours. And it was interesting. And then he like hugged her goodbye. There was none of those bombshells. So that's why I was so surprised in the movie when they're like, oh, by the way, his grandpa's not his dad. He might have been a disassociative personality and he might have molested his sister and blah, blah, blah. That was surprising to me that that wasn't in the book at all. You know, that the Bundy thing was just a, a small portion and just kind of in passing, really. She goes into more on why are some murders executed and some not, kind of going into why that might be a thing or just as raising that as a general question is why are some people killed for what they did and some are not killed. There is way more information on Maria Moore in the book than in the movie. In the movie, it's basically like she sums it up in a sentence. He was involved with a young boy. They took a girl hostage and she died. In the book, it's pages. And there's lots more details that are way more interesting. And again, I understand they didn't want to make like a four hour special, but I would highly recommend reading the book so you can see those details. Because there was more than just one person affected. There was, weren't more killed, but there were more hostages and stuff. She goes into more detail about Garrett, way more detail, and it fleshes the story out a lot more, and I think you really get a better sense of everything in the book. She has a section where they part common sense at the door of courtrooms. <laughs> she talks about how it's, I guess that speaks for itself, is that sometimes seemingly people with common sense, it tends to go away when you're during a trial, and gives an example of letting people represent themselves. If they... <laughs> If they think that they can defend themselves, that just shows that they shouldn't be defending themselves. And then there's the Shawcross section. And there's, of course, lots more information on Shawcross. And she goes into way more detail. Then there's the, of course, the legal medium insanity. There's a section on that. There is a more succinct version. There's still some good details in the movie. But, of course, like I said, there's some more details if you're interested in the book. I will uh, quote one of the paragraphs, and you'll see why at the end of it. When angered, legislatures, like individuals, act impulsive. They pass laws that fly in the face of common sense. Under such laws, murderers who are obviously stark raving mad are not legally insane. Everyone knows that a serial killer who eats his victim, even a teensy piece of his victim, is crazy. But somehow, by adopting purely moralistic and unmeasurable definitions of insanity and forcing psychiatrists to make use of them, the legal profession forces us to reach some pretty peculiar conclusions. Was Arthur Shawcross crazy when he murdered his victims and consumed their genitalia? Of course, he had to be. Insane? Not necessarily. Not according to some forensic psychiatrists. I wouldn't be a bit surprised if someday soon a state legislature develops a concept of crazy not insane or psychotic not insane. So there's actually two reasons, well, three reasons I, I quoted that. Is one, it gives you the gist of her argument, what she's talking about. Two, it mentions that psychiatrists, 
that talked about Arthur Shawcross eating that genitalia and it doesn't matter. That, that, that That's not consequential. And then she says, crazy and not insane. I don't honestly remember if they mentioned it in the movie, which that would be the titular line, which is always exciting. But that obviously stood out to me since I, I hadn't watched the movie yet and I knew that that's what the movie was called. So there you go. Some quick other little things. Kate Fear was mentioned just briefly in the book. And they don't talk about Max and his other personalities at all. I was surprised at the length of it, considering that I didn't remember it being in the book at all. I remember the mention of Kate Fear, but in the book she just says, I had a hell of a time trying to find somebody for De Niro to talk to. And that was it. Like, it didn't even really say, well, she found someone or this is who it was. And I went back through after I watched the movie and when I was taking my notes right before recording this, I flipped through the pages and I don't see where that car- that guy was mentioned. And it's a little disappointing because I thought it was really interesting. That made it nice that it wasn't just everything that was in the book was in the movie. There was something else added in there. And I, if it's in there and I missed it, I apologize. But I would think a Zen monk guy that tried to kill his lovers would have stuck out of my brain if I would have read it. In the movie... They interviewed Sam Jones, the executioner. In the book, they call him Bob Smith, which I think that's fairly obvious. That probably means that at the point of time when it was this book came out in 1998, they probably didn't have permission to use his real name. But by the time the movie came out in 2020, they were apparent they were able to get his real name. But everything else was pretty much the same in that interview. The last note that I will make is that they do mention in the book that she spoke with Velma Barfield, who's a serial killer, that the lawyer, that she had examined her, but Velma wouldn't allow what was revealed to be used to help her because she didn't want to embarrass her family. And of course, Dorothy can't say what it was. So it's a little frustrating not to know, but it is interesting that there was another serial killer that she spoke to and that Velma Barfield, I believe it said that she was like the first woman to be executed and that she was executed because she didn't want to defend herself the way that might have helped her, possibly. So that's basically the difference between the book and the movie. I had originally thought to read other books of hers in case it was helpful to the movie. So the other books are Delinquency and Psychopathology. It's by her and Dr. David Bala from 1976. It is a collection of material from different psychiatric journals pertaining to the subject. I could only find a PDF version, and when I say I, I mean Todd. Todd was able to find it in some archive where I could borrow it for like 14 days. It was too difficult to, um, to actually buy, so I have the PDF at the moment. There is Vulnerabilities to Delinquency from 1991, and when I went to search to see if I could buy that, it was like $144 to $252 to buy. So I figured I'll just not worry about that one. (laughs) And the next one is Child and Adolescent Psychiatric Clinics of North America, Disassociative Identity Disorder, Multiple Personality Disorder, from April 1996, Volume 5, Number 2. Dorothy and Dr. Frank W. Putnam were guest editors. Her husband, Melvin Lewis, was a consulting editor, and as a reminder, he was a professor of pediatrics and psychiatry at Yale. This was also a collection of essays by people involved in psychiatry, and several of them were by Lewis. I found it for $24.95 on Amazon. I was able to find two of those three books, And those, as you can tell, since they're essays basically by different psychiatrists and such, it's way more clinical. 
So, for example, in the delinquency and psychopathology, some of the subtopics are psychiatric and sociological viewpoints, changing perspectives and emphasis, diagnostic evaluation, sociopathy and its symptoms, diagnosis of questionable usefulness, the children, central nervous system dysfunction, a variety of clinical pictures, psychomotor epileptic symptomology, paranoid ideation and delinquent behaviors, a triad. So right there you can tell. Obviously, this is clinical, very technical. It's not so technical that you can't get the gist of it, but it's definitely not sitting down and reading Guilty Not Insane. It's not sitting down and reading your general book. It is definitely a little more challenging. So that book was from 1976. And again, it focuses on delinquency and this psychology behind it. And the other book... Child and Adolescent Psychiatric Clinics, Disassociative Identity Disorder, and Multiple Personality Disorder. Those are very specifically about the disassociative things, but it's from 1996. And I found it interesting that 20 years apart, to see the difference in maybe some of the studies and general attitudes and thoughts and whatever in that field during that time. One of the thing, one of the problems is the first one's just kind of more general about delinquency and psychiatry, psychology goes behind that. And the other one is specifically disassociative disorders. So it's a little bit different, but it still all deals with child psychology. I read a little bit of each of them, and it was, like I said, it was a little more involved, so it was a little, it wasn't quite as much of a breeze to go through. At that point, I figured there's a lot going on. Instead of really pushing myself to read through both of these volumes and compare them, because that's going to take a little bit of doing because it is it is working a part of my brain I'm maybe not always used to working. I thought, well, I'll watch the movie. And if after watching the movie, I feel like reading these other things would be really important to the episode, then I will maybe push the episode back or try to cram read these two books. But after re- watching the movie, I don't think it's necessary for me to, to read both of these and have all the material ready for this episode. I will say that from the little bit that I read in the Disassociative Identity Disorder book, that is where I got some of the information that I said earlier, and that's from the 1996 book. It was interesting, and it did help a little bit. I think it's something where overall I'm going to take my time and read into it because every little bit you learn, I think, can help you shed light as you move forward in researching and in life in general. You never know what you read that will come into play later on and maybe help out. Overall, I would say definitely read Guilty by Reason of Insanity and watch the movie if you're interested at all. Because, like I said, there are some things in the movie that aren't in the book and vice versa. On bookfinder.com, it looks like you can find it for like $18 on Amazon. It goes up from there in price at different sites. But I would say bookfinder.com is good because it, it searches, I forget, what insane number of places it searches to try to find pricing but that's a good way to to find it but I would encourage you to or borrow it from the library whatever you got to do I, I would really encourage you to read it it is a very engaging read it reads quickly it's not too technical I think it's a great companion as far as my opinion of Dorothy Otnell Lewis in general I think she's engaging I think she's fun I think she's smart and has a lot of good points She really does seem to try to be unbiased and a lot of her work is her reevaluating what she, how she does things, which I mean, that's an important thing in any kind of science is, is you have to 
you have to be at least somewhat flexible or else what's the fucking point? She got made fun of when she said, I believe in multiple personality disorder. She got made fun of. But she had the fortitude to stand strong and to say, this is what I believe. But she would say if someone would come up to her and say, well, I think there's another explanation. She's like, okay, great. I'd love to know it. Please tell me. She wants to get to the bottom of it. And just because she strongly believes this is a thing, if she found something else that countered that, she would take that into account. I do think that she goes into something as a clean slate, like she said, as much as possible. And I think she has a lot of good points. I don't know if it's the ultimate truth or she's on the right track to helping to find the right way to handle things or or a better way of dealing with things. It's a really engaging book and you can see really see that in the movie is how she's interesting. She makes jokes and she's not like Jeff Goldblum on uh, Jurassic Park. She's not like the rock star, but she's she's still not stuffy. She's still fun and engaging. So Queen Victoria says, watch the movie, read the book. It brings up all kinds of interesting questions and such. Well, that is the end of that. And like I said, the next episode will be about the Reigns brothers and the Chicago Rippers. And after that, there will be a special little uh, Valentine episode. So stay tuned. You can find us on Google Play and iTunes. The RSS feed is available at murderlabmedia.com. So you can plug that into your favorite podcast apps and listen. Keep an eye on the Facebook and Instagram pages and the website for more updates. You never know what'll be coming up in the lab. Thank you again to Igor and all of you wonderful lab rats out there being supportive and listening. Thank you for entering the lab. <laughs>